pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Gene? I don't feel nothing. Well, keep trying. These are the ones that are going to help us. Andy. Francis. Bobo. Say, that's pretty good. It's a surprise. It's a bear. <laughs> it's a bear, all right. A boy of 19, Elvis Cartwright, is buried alive in this old cage. The whole country has come to his aid, but as of yet, no conclusion has been reached on how he might be saved. The dome doesn't work. We need a liquor license. That costs money. We need publicity. That costs money. Why did you lie to me? She could really do it. Don't you see what I'm getting at? She could really do it. This country is full of nuts that would come to see her. We put her on each night, let her go through a routine. It'll drive the country wild. Before Norma Jean, I would have said, forget it. But with Norma Jean, we got something. I know it. Something big. There's no limit. But we ain't got Norma Jean. I ain't letting her do it no more. Hey, they're training us. There's someone with me. But I feel alone. Dark and it's quiet. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Jim Donahue. Hey, what you got in that here box? Also, back in the booth is Mr. Richard Haddam. How you doing there, Bobo? We are talking this week about a rather unusual film. I mean, what's new, right? But this one is odd even by my standards. It's Julene Compton's The Plastic Dome of Norma Jean. Released in 1966, the film stars Sharon Hennessy as the titular Norma Jean. She's an innocent and a clairvoyant who summons up a rock band to join her at her titular Plastic Dome, a large structure which comes to act like a tent for a holy revival. I'm would say that we're spoiling things for this 53-year-old film, but I think listening to this might help make things a little bit clearer rather than just diving into this one cold. So, Jim, tell me. I'm so curious, you guys, about both of your reactions because I haven't talked to either of you about this. So what did you think, Jim, about the Plastic Dome of Norma Jean? This one grabbed me immediately. It has third-act issues, but... From the moment Norma Jean climbed on top of the box and summoned that uh, rock group to her presence, I'm like, okay, I'm in. I've never met Jim. I don't know Jim. And you took the words right out of my mouth. I feel like the experience of watching this movie is the experience of being in a slowly deflating hot air balloon the moment you describe is exuberant and just, I, I, I couldn't wipe the grin off my face. I was so delighted by what was happening. I didn't know what was happening, but I was in. I, lo- I loved the song. I loved the way it was shot. I mean, I just, everything about that scene. 
the magical appearance of, of this band, there's, there's clearly an aura of, it, it's a strange mixture of sort of naturalism and surrealism, but there is that feeling of, oh, okay, things are just going to unfold. I think they're from Norma Jean's point of view, or at least we're kind of in her world and her reality is calling the shots in a way. But anyway, uh, yeah, it started out uh, on a real high for me. Yeah, it starts at a very high place. And then, like you said, it is like a slowly deflating uh, balloon through the rest of this or a slowly flating, deflating plastic dome, as it were. But I, I love that. I love how it starts with these two young people. We've got Norma Jean and Vance in this in the forest and he's playing the harmonica. And then it becomes like kind of the theme to the movie, this great uh, Michelle Legrand score that they have. They drive for forever they go to pick up this package that they ordered from a catalog and we don't know what the hell's going on. Even when they're driving through the forest and stuff, I'm just like, what year is this? What part of the country is this? Is this post-apocalyptic? I don't even know where they're at in, in, in anything. And then they get very specific later on. They just start talking about Table Rock and the Ozarks. I'm just like, oh, okay, I can actually look that up in, on a map. That's a real thing. And we get a little bit of a nearby city, which just seems to be a total tourist trap. There's all these hotel signs that they keep passing by as they go out and try to get people to come out to their plastic dome. But even before we know what this dome is or what it is that they order from a catalog, I'm just like, I have so many questions. I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> and the cinematography for this movie, it's top notch. It just looks fantastic. I looked up the this, this cinematographer, and I, I've not seen anything else that he's done. It looked like the only other title of note he did was uh, Royal Hunt of the Sun, which is you know, a big epic set in South America. But other than that, I, I'm unfamiliar with his titles. It was really beautifully shot. I, just when the story began to become more prosaic, I, there's a certain point where we know where it's going, and, and boy, it just goes right there. But every few minutes, every few couple of scenes, something beautiful, there's some visual ideas, some things going on that bring you back and, and kind of make you feel like, no, no, give it another. We could pull out of this nosedive. We, we don't know. It could happen. Well, even when it's just them at Table Rock, and they've got this huge wooden crate that they've ordered through this catalog, this plastic dome that they're going to have to inflate. And it's just the two of them out in this very arid type of, you know, it looks like a wasteland, but it's like these mountains and stuff. I kept thinking about Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, like Varla was going to pull up and be like, you know, what are you two kids doing? And, you know, eventually would break the guy's back or something. That setting feels so much like the California desert. Uh, I was like, oh yeah, okay, so this we're we're in Missouri. This is the Ozarks. Okay. That that's still when I think of the Ozarks, I don't picture that. It's not an area I am familiar with or have been to. But when I saw that, I'm like, oh, I've driven by that on the way to Vegas five hundred times, but apparently not. Table Rock is not all that far from Branson. I believe, which is like now the entertainment capital of the Ozarks in Branson Township, I think. So, yeah, it's right there. And yeah, I was looking around. I was just like, I don't know where any of this stuff is really like it's not that far from that many things. But yeah, this like I said, it looks like a wasteland. It looks like you're, you know, there could be mutants that crawl out from one of those caves or something rather than 
we're going to build this massive plastic dome here and suddenly make it a rock venue slash revival tent type of thing. I think nowadays when you're watching a movie, if you're unclear on exactly what's happening or what the tone is, you default to danger and you default toward sinister, something something bad's going to happen. That was an underlying feeling I was having, even though the visuals and the music weren't giving me that, but I like, I don't know. And then, but it's so funny as, as Jim said, then they get there and he, you know, he gets that ladder from somewhere, leans it up All again. All sorts th- of things appear. Yes. <laughs> including his guitar in a few seconds here. You sort of are led into a feeling of youthful exuberance, which is, you know, pretty smart for the structure of the movie. That's where you do have to be at the beginning in a place of hope and optimism and exuberance and, and good things appearing out of nowhere. And that is absolutely how it feels. And yes, Vance's guitar appears out of nowhere. Sam Waterston appears out of nowhere. Poor Sam Waterston, he doesn't really get that many lines. It's like the one guy that you recognize for sure. Like I recognize, you know, the guy that plays Bobo as well, but just, I was like, oh my God, it's Sam Waterston. He looks the same as he does now, you know, all these years later, but he and the other guy, what is it? Uh, like she goes through and she kind of names them like Andy, yeah, Francis, Andy Francis and, Francis Bobo. and Bobo. Yeah. Right. And Andy and Francis, they're basically the same person. They have no discerning features other than one wears glasses and the other one doesn't, but they're pretty much it. And then Bobo, who seems like he's going to be the romantic rival, but really he's just this sinister force, though he doesn't initially come off as sinister. But I guess our feeling of danger, maybe our our warning signals were going up because of Bobo here. Perhaps you're psychic, Mike. And you didn't even have to touch his chest. I mean, not that I would turn it down or anything. (laughs) Within the first 10 minutes of this movie, it's like, okay, well, now we got a band and we got a venue and okay, well, Vance, you're going to become a part of our band now. We're going to go from a trio to a quartet and yeah, all right, we're all set. Let's do it. Where are we going to go from here? And unfortunately, things kind of slow down a little bit after this. I mean, they, they continue at an interesting pace, but it's not just this like, and then this happens and then this happens and this, this happens like. We have done the setup, and now the rest of the movie is going to progress at a little bit more of a a leisurely pace. They give up on their dream of being a music act really fast. Yes. Well, they kind of do and they don't because they're like, once they figure out that Norma Jean is psychic, it's like, oh, well, we'll have her be the main act. But they still insist on playing every single night, even though they're not really like people are there for the band, you know? A psychic that is basically pretty much a bummer. The crowd sort of builds as she predicts terrible things and makes people uncomfortable. At no point is she giving out lottery numbers. We just covered Nightmare Alley a few weeks ago, and I was just like, she's very Stanton Carlisle-esque with the way that she does her readings and stuff, but it's not like oh, your husband married you because you're so beautiful. And like none of those like talking up the crowd like a showman would. She's just like, oh, I sense death and pain. (laughs) It's like, okay, thanks, Cassandra. But I will lead you to the dead body in the well. Hey, Sylvia Brown had a pretty good career and she was actually famous for telling people, hey, I'm sorry, your daughter's dead. So people can pull that off. 
You mentioned earlier that sort of revival tent feeling inside the dome. And of course, that's something that is is part of the culture of that, you know, the Bible Belt and that part of America. I'm probably not the best one to leech out the thematic harmonics of what she's doing and what it means for that audience and how it compels the people in that geographic area to come to her. We don't, I mean, other than the presence of a lot of people, we don't necessarily get a sense of the personal. Re- it's not like there's individuals whose lives she is transforming. I think we have one woman who leaves crying, but I think she's the one that hangs herself. Right. She's the one who commits suicide. Yeah. Clearly there's something compelling about her and there's something that makes the community go, yeah, we need to go watch this person. It is a little strange that it is accompanied by fairly jaunty pop music of the mid sixties. And so th- that feels a little strange. I, I, again, I enjoyed the aesthetic of it. I love the, you know, the neon star and how she sort of wears that, you know, when she does, I don't know why, uh, why people kept showing up for her. I just wanted to talk about the music a little bit. So there's the Michelle Legrand score, which at least the Norma Jean theme is out there and available on some compilation set uh, of Legrand music. Uh, we've talked about him before on the show. He did all the music for Umbrellas of Cherbourg. He did the score for Other Side of the Wind. You know, very well-known, well-regarded uh, composer. And I was very surprised. Surprised and not surprised. because, And we'll talk more about Julian Compton as we go along here. But that she managed to bag him for this movie. It was just like, wow, that's surprising until you realize how talented she is. And that she was always seemed to have a knack of being in the right place at the right time. There are four pop songs in here. Three of them were written by the same people. And those, I don't know if they were part of the band, the Duprees, but the Duprees definitely did all of those songs. Norma Jean, can't remember the other three. And then there's the Poor Boy song, which is the one that introduces us to all clad in black with this kind of like Beatles haircuts kind of thing. The, these guys, the, the quartet or trio that becomes the quartet. And that was by a band called the V A C L E S, the black Vaclas. No wonder they didn't survive. And I can't find anything about them out online whatsoever. I spent a half an hour today trying to find something about them using different keywords and trying to uh, put in the lyrics of of Poor Boy, because that's my favorite of the songs. It's a great song. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. To the point where I wondered if the Vackles was a typo. Because they had the songwriters listed, or at least their last names. Nothing. It seemed like two brothers and then two other guys. One of them was V. Gorman, and there's a Vinnie Gorman, who wrote a couple of songs for the Shangri-Las around that time period. So I'm guessing that is him, but I don't know if he was in a band. Just to catch up the listener in case they, they're not tracking this. Okay, so here's what we've got. We've got Norman Jean and her boyfriend Vance, and they're, they bought a large dome, but like it's like the size of a circus tent. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's big. I mean, it's, it can hold 300 people, okay? But but it's deflated, so it's really, they say it's plastic when they're inflating it, which is a really fun sequence. It looks silk. It looks like a parachute sort of inflating. But anyway, they buy it because the idea is that Vance is going to play the guitar and people are going to come and listen to him. 
And then this, these other three musicians, sort of like in a fairy tale, appear out of nowhere and decide they're going to join in and they'll all be a quartet. And they, they give that a shot. They give it about one night. For some reason, it doesn't go as well as they want it to go, I guess. And then they become very negative and decide this is all a bust. But but the fact that Norma Jean seems to have these these psychic premonitions and and get impressions from things she touches, that's what's going to do it. And and they all need to make money and they all know it. And it takes money to make money and they've got to do this thing. And it, and and suddenly a, a decision is made by the men that Norma Jean is going to be the one to get them attention. And so that's what starts happening. And it does start happening and it is successful. She, she is able to do this stuff, but it, it, it appears to be taking a physical toll on her in the second act. Adjacent to that, you have these little adventures that go on when Andy and Francis show back up in their VW bug and they have a package with them. We don't know what's in there. They take Norma Jean. I think they just take Norma Jean out into the forest again. They take her into this old abandoned cabin. And then next thing you know, one guy comes out. He's dressed like a magician. One guy comes out. He's dressed in a bear outfit. She comes out dressed as a princess with rabbit ears. And she's riding a pony. I don't think that pony was in that box, but... That's the way this movie runs. It just runs by its own logic. The first thing they do when they so they get to this location is she points at a log and says, oh, there's a piano. And I don't remember if it's Andy or Francis, but one of them says, uh, it's a log. And she goes over and she starts playing the log and it sounds like a piano. And there's a guy who's outside skulking and we'll run into him later on. He's this guy, Christopher ironically he's petting a rabbit and he's got a pie plate and i'm just like okay is there a connection here her with these bunny ears and him carrying this rabbit and this rabbit will play a big part in the third act of this film and i'm just like what what I, huh this is the kind of movie that is just kind of made for me and i'm just like yes i love this i loved that scene so much As the first time i watched the film i just went back and <laughs> first of all i went back and i i rewatched the Poor boy sequence. And then once I got here, I immediately went back to the beginning of, of this forest sequence because it's just so wild and beautiful. It's just so beautifully shot. It's fantastic, but it it's one of those things that you'll puzzle over for the rest of your life because theoretically it could be lifted wholesale from the film. In fact, I think for people who don't have the advantage that we do watching it on our computers, who if they went into a theater and watched the movie... I bet by the by the final image of the film, they may have totally forgotten that scene even existed because it is so it is so out of place in like every other part of the movie kind of follows a chronology and a prosaic logic that that you know that connects to the main story. And this is like almost like a dream sequence telling you about it's like here's some Here's some weird things that are connected to things that will happen later. Well, she gets a vision at some point during this sequence, and it's Bobo with this other girl. And I think he says something like, did you travel far to get here? Then later on, we'll see that again. And she eventually calls him out for lying to her. She's like, you said that you were doing this or that. And 
you were actually with this girl and she doesn't seem jealous at all. She just seems to be like, why did you lie to me? And there's also another theme that gets introduced right here, which is the whole idea of this little boy that's been trapped in a cave. And this story goes throughout the whole thing. And I kept waiting for the stories to intersect and that they don't intersect makes me think that, you know, her story is similar to this story, but there's no, you know, there's no connective tissue necessarily between the two. But I have to think that there's parallels between this boy and especially Johnny, this little guy who tries to go into the cave to retrieve the boy that, you know, there's some parallels between that story and her story. I kept waiting for her to somehow use her psychic powers to save the boy or know that he was dead or something. And I kept thinking of all these other people trapped in a cave movies like Ace in the Hole or even that whole thing in uh, 12 Monkeys where... I remember being very afraid for that little boy. All alone, done that well, not knowing if anybody's going to get him out. First time I was ever really afraid when I was a kid. What do you mean when you were a kid? Never mind. Just a prank, a hoax, a boy's hiding in a barn. I think that story always played on the Baby Jessica story. I don't know if you guys are ancient like me or remember Baby Jessica. I watched the movie for like the fourth time this afternoon, and I was trying to figure out how the whole uh, trapped in a cave thing links up. And the only thing that I came up with, and it's kind of tenuous, just that he's trapped and Norma Jean is trapped. Also, the boy's name is Elvis. Elvis Presley trapped in his own way, though I don't know. You mean he was caught in a trap? You know, kind of like, he couldn't get out. Let's guess he loves you too much, baby. If it was widely known how, like, caught up, I mean, trapped he was by Colonel Parker. And in 1966, was he even a drug addict? I don't know. I think that came later. But I don't know if she was trying to make a point between Elvis Presley by using that name. His stardom and Norma Jean's burgeoning stardom. That's, that's the best I could do. All of these things that don't fit chrono chronologically or, or don't adhere to the main narrative are there for thematic purposes only the rabbit the you know that again the whole sort of when they all they go and suddenly there are these strange traveling minstrels in a bear suit and on a pony and it's all, the only explanation is their push and theme which, which is fine and and provides some of the joy of this movie although I don't think the theme of this movie is abstract to the point where people aren't going to get it. I would say that throughout the second and into the third act and throughout the end of the movie, it's pretty clear what we're talking about. It is a film-length reflection on how certain personalities or personality types can be exploited in show business, typically by men for monetary purposes, and, and you end up killing the golden goose. This and Stranded are really the movies that we know Julian Compton from. She did a third movie much later in her career, which she hated that whole experience. She wrote a few TV movies, but it's interesting. You can draw parallels between this being the end of Norma Jean and this being the end of her Hollywood ambition, a lot of it. And just, but even though she still worked, you know, continuously for like another, like, 10, 15 years and really trying to, to, to make it, but just, she was much more, she was made for independent stuff. She wasn't made for the Hollywood life. And so like things like this, things like stranded 
they sing, they shine. Hollywood is Bobo. Hollywood is the one going like, we need promotions, we need this, we need that. And, you know, just taking her and making her, you know, work, 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 and never appreciating anything that she does. And just like, sorry, Bobo, but we can't all fit into that mold all the time. Stranded, I think, did okay in Europe, but I don't even know if it got released in the U.S., did it, Mike? I think it might have had a small theatrical run. I mean, this was the days of, you know, doing your four walls and stuff. So probably played a few places in New York at most. And then Plastic Dome, I think, barely played at all. It was one of those things that I think she realized that she didn't really have that that producer type of person, that maybe that Colonel Tom Parker, that Bobo, to like push her to be like, oh, now we need to do the promotion. Now we need to get this the word out about this great film that you made. But she was just content to make the films and not go after that because she had her own career. She had this whole thing of like interior decorating and real estate where she's flipping properties and doing decorations and all this kind of stuff. And Which is how she funded these first two films. Yeah, it's wild that she was basically independently wealthy and could make films based upon her own wealth rather than going out and scrambling and making money and spending every penny so carefully for all of these films. That model usually does not come up with a very good movie. This is like a remarkable film. And I haven't seen Stranded, but it sounds like a pretty remarkable filmography coming from someone outside who's just got a lot of money and says, you know what? I'm going to make me a movie. This is a very successful example or one of the few where that works out pretty well. I wish she'd done more. I wish because it's fascinating. I mean, her her vision and her aesthetic is engaging and interesting and clearly it's not a voice not a ton of female directors sort of coming from the outside ever much less in the 60s i wish there had been many many more so we could fit this into a big jigsaw puzzle of whatever you're thinking yeah there was a good book i read about female directors and they paired her with shirley clark when they were talking about you know the 60s and it's like Shirley Clark was making such different films, had such different motivations. You couldn't take two more different people for me than Shirley Clark and Julian Compton. And it's like, but these are the only two examples you can think of, or these are the only like real thing. You know, I mean, the, the author probably said these two are so different. I have to try to compare and contrast their careers. I know there were other female filmmakers working out there at the time and different exploitation directors that are working. There's, you know, there's not really a whole lot of mainstream Hollywood directors that are women at this time, if at all that I can think of. I mean, Ida Lupino, her day has passed by this point. And there were more in the 70s, but in the 60s, I'm having trouble coming up with more names. Yeah. And Julian Compton, she was right there with Stranded over in Europe working with a lot of the new wave filmmakers and you know she was there with you'll hear in the interview later she was there may 68 with all of the filmmakers and the student protests and all that stuff so she was in all of these places going back and forth between europe and the united states all the time had properties in both places if not multiple properties i know she still has many houses out in california she lives in a great place in new york all this and it's like Okay, yeah, you you really just made a real name for yourself. She tried the acting thing, and she was a great actress. She stars in Stranded. I thought she was really good in that. And I thought that she got great performances out of everybody in Plastic Dome. So she wasn't, this is not a story of a person who was trying to 
break into the studio system and this and the studios just you know what i mean it, she was doing her own thing on the outside she wasn't looking for money she had the money right she had the money but she she couldn't get the distribution that was the big problem probably because she was working out of the system people just weren't interested i mean you you always have to factor in to what degree was it because she was a woman and that was just like oh i'm sure that was a big factor because the movie it's not it's not like this movie couldn't play you know i mean it's got music and good people i mean come on this could have been a cult hit at the time if it had had decent distribution absolutely 100 percent. this so reminds me of things like leslie stevens's incubus though where it's all shot in esperanto very beautiful it almost looks like a bergman film and it's just that kind of became a cult movie because it was just so out there so ultra with her when she comes to hollywood she's like okay well i've got these two feature films that i've directed i should be able to direct and it's like whoa 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 little lady i can't just take you and put you in the director's seat you're gonna have to work your way through this you're gonna have to start writing stuff and then maybe eventually you'll get a break and then you'll become a director. But first, you really have to prove yourself. And she's like, I proved myself. I've already got these things. And then when it comes to the script she's writing, it's just like, wow, that's so great. There's no way that we can make this, but we'll buy this and we'll store it. And so nobody else can make it. And it's like, what? And then when it comes to like her last film, it's like, okay, well, this is great and all, but you have to change the ending. You have to, to, to make this much more commercially viable. Uh, because otherwise, you know, people just won't see it. It's that, like you were saying, Jim, it's the distribution thing. It's like, well, it's a great idea, great movie, but if people, if you expect people to come see it, you have to make the right decisions, quote unquote, and take your main character and don't have her go off and become an outlaw and prove that she can be out there on her own. You have to have her wake up from a dream and be like, whew, good thing that didn't really happen. You know, when I watched that film uh, just a few days ago and I got to that ending, I just like, oh my God, no, please tell me that wasn't your choice. And then to find out that was the ending that was forced on her by the producers. I'm like, okay, now that makes sense. Because why <laughs> why would she have gone with this? That last one, by the way, is Buckeye and Blue. It was uh, released under. And why? Why would you do that? Why would you take this thing that, that she was making and that I thought was, you know, pretty decent. And then at the end, it just shits the bed. Uh, you know, a studio directed bed shitting. Did that even go on to theatrical distribution or did that maybe go straight to VHS or something? I mean, 1987, it's really tough to tell. I don't remember that ever coming out. I know. Again, I'm, I was watching the, the version that you provided to me and it, it looked very much like it was intended for VHS. Just the way it was framed, the way it was shot. But I don't know if that was true. And with a film like this, you don't want to see a restoration, you know, as opposed to now, finally, all the years later, Stranded and the plastic, the Dome of Norma Jean are now available on Blu-ray. On Blu-ray, yeah, at a bargain price, and I'm going to be buying. It's fantastic. They they look great. And that was one really good thing about the pandemic was uh, this is actually Justin Bozong, Mundo Justin, that used to be on the show. He reached out, gosh sometime mid pandemic and was just like, have you ever heard of this movie? And he turned me on to it. And it's like, no, I've, I've never heard of this. Never. You know, the name Julian Compton has never crossed my eyes before. And then they had a nice, um, 
screening of it. I think UCLA put it on, and they even had a Q&A afterwards that's still available, I think, on Vimeo with Julene and, and the um, the hostess. And yeah, it was very fascinating to hear her stories and just to be introduced to this world that I had no idea it existed. It's like the frustration that we're exhibiting about the trajectory of her career and her, you know, the limitations of that creative output sort of sort of run in parallel to the frustration of watching a movie about a young woman who is exploited and and I get it and yes that is a true story but but that frustration as it goes on and on and on and she seems to have diminishing agency to act on her own behalf or do anything to alter the trajectory of what we know is going to be a tragic life watching her sort of be at the mercy of these guys i mean bobo just becomes he starts out creepy and gets worse and just physically skin crawlingly horrible by the way and vance is on her side and he's not not much better because he's so ineffectual ineffective yeah it becomes frustrating especially today to to watch a narrative where we're like okay we're gonna watch the bad thing happen and then it does and, and by the way sharon hennessy is so great and so engaging and when she kind of perks to life in the third act at the sort of junkyard auto graveyard and she meets chris and we get to see her sort of like the clouds part and the sun comes out it's so great there's a big difference between childlike and childish and she is on the right side of childlike. There's just a real innocence about her, where as opposed to, you know, childish. And I'm, I mean, the name that just immediately comes to mind is Jerry Lewis. I know. In a second, I don't like what they're being the guy in the honey. Terrific performance, and she went on to a handful of of tiny roles in other films. I think like maybe five other films. Uh, within the next five years or so after this film. And then apparently she did not work in film or TV again. She's the, the like I said, the titular Norma Jean. This movie lives and dies by this performance, and she can carry this film. Like you said, Richard, when she gets that auto graveyard and we get to see that spark come back in her eyes, it's like, oh, yeah, this is the reason why I was watching this movie originally. This is why I was so excited at the beginning when the rock band is showing up and all this. It's because she is this font of joy, and then she's just had it beaten out of her through the rest of the film. And you were talking about that whole, like, the way that the balloon deflates kind of thing. And I think the one thing that really got me was just the, you know, oh, I'm, I am I can't go on. You know, there's, uh, I don't want to do this anymore. It just, it kind of like, yeah, physically hurts her, definitely emotionally hurts her when she's there doing these readings and all these awful things are coming out. And they do that once, and then the scene changes, and they do it again. And it was just like, okay, just one of these, or maybe combine these two scenes into one, or make make it a little worse or something. But just, I guess it was to show us the grind that she's going through every single night. But it was just like, wow, this seems a little like, it, it feels like they mixed up the reels, and we just had the same scene shown twice, basically. I was like, okay, I kind of get it, but at the same time, maybe vary it up a little bit because there are some great things that are going on in these scenes. There's a, a wonderful shot for me where it was, I think it's, is it 
Vance and Bobo. I can't remember who's talking in the foreground. And then you see Sam Waterston's shadow, his silhouette in the back playing the drums. And I love that shot just to see him in the background playing the drums while this conversation is going on in the foreground to the point where apparently I've forgotten who's in the foreground just because I'm concentrating on him so much in the back. There was a lot of that. There was a lot of like really fun. Again, in the you know first half hour of the movie when they, again, the sequence of inflating the tent and then their silhouettes as they're kind of all dancing and exulting in the erection of the tent, if you will. And the, visually, it's really fun. And it, it, it allows you to enjoy the spectacle and the environment. And again, like I said, sort of throughout, it's visually compelling. It's, it's really the narrative. And look, it did what it wanted to do, which, which was make you watch as the life is drained out of a character that you fall in love with. It feels almost like a biopic of a singer or something where the manager just keeps giving her drugs and cocaine, just get out of school, lady, you know, and it's like, it's killing her. Another connection that I, I meant to uh, point this out earlier, but it now makes sense here also, Norma Jean. Who's the most, most famous Norma Jean? Marilyn Monroe, who also got stuck in her stardom like this Norma Jean and like Elvis. And I can't think that there's a coincidence when oh, it comes no, to Oh, no, absolutely that. not. As soon as I heard the title the very first time, I was just like, Norma Jean, oh, is this about Marilyn Monroe? Well, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Norma oh, I, Jean, I thought the same. What year did Marilyn Monroe die? So it was 63-ish, I think. I was going to say, it feels like 63, and then this movie is 66. 66. Guys, she only lasted until August 4th, 62. 62. When did Kennedy die? Did she die before Kennedy? Because he was 63. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, Johnny. There's your Johnny. Now we got Norma Dean, we got Johnny, we got Elvis. All right, we got it. Who's the, who's the famous Bobo? I mean, the only Bobo I can think of would be like named after a monkey or something, but. You had enough yet? No. That's another one. So? You just say the word, I'll keep going. Go. Eeny, meeny, miny. Mo. Your mother was a. Ho. He was a famous clown. Bobo. Mitch, cut it out. I feel like he's going to be the nickname of some studio head or some, you know, impresario of some sort that is legendary. Well, even when she was naming them and naming, you know, Andy and Francis, I was just like, are these all saints? And then she gets to Bobo and I was like, oh, okay. Definitely. There was no Saint Bobo as far as I know. I mean, I'm not religious or anything, but I don't think there's a sacred Bobo church someplace. Our Lady of uh, Peaceful Bobo. But yeah, as soon as Bobo shows up with the lawyer and also the mayor, and at first I mistook the mayor for a promoter. And then finally I was like, oh, wait, no, that's the mayor. And now he is totally in Bobo's pocket. Like they did the whole thing of like, oh, well, we'll prove that Norma Jean's psychic and we'll find this body and all this kind of stuff. And that I think also confused me. And I'm, you know, full, full exposure here. I was confused the first time I watched this because it was like, oh, somebody's hanging and, you know, they're going to find this body. And it's like, is this the little boy in the cave? And then finally it was like, oh, no, it's the old lady who was so, so sad about Barkham. Is the name that she... Barkabarkas, I guess. Barkham, okay. Well, she kept saying Barkas, Barkas. I thought it was Barkas, but maybe... I think it was Barkham. Mrs. Barkley, Barkham, Barsom. And I thought that that... I didn't think that was a dog. I thought that was a, a man. 
And then I also thought when they said that I was out here with Elvis, I thought Elvis was the name of a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't Elvis the name of Sonny Crockett's alligator in Miami? I got to ask you guys, it felt like I was watching this in film school and I'm like, okay, now I've got to write a paper. What are we going to say about Chris, the old guy who lives in the junkyard, who appeared in the strange sequence, but... What does he represent? What does he represent in all this? And that's not even his real name. You know, Christopher Montague Forsythe is the name that is inside of his hat. It's not even his real name. But yeah, he gets to be known as Chris through this movie. And he's shown earlier in the film. And then even when she's having kind of like a whole series of flashes at one point when she's going through some troubling visions we suddenly start to see him and we see the junkyard at that point way before we actually see the junkyard, which I was like, Oh, okay. And then, yeah, the way we get him and then you get those two rednecks that show up and they're just like, Oh, this old man, he was chasing this girl. And it's like, no, that's not how this was at all. You guys were out here throwing stones at his rabbit. Man, that scene was upsetting. It was. If you have a white rabbit and something, Obviously, you've got to think of Alice in Wonderland. Of course, yeah. He gets his name from the inside of his hat, so I thought of the Mad Hatter, but I don't really know how that fits in with the themes of the film. I think it's sort of a go-to, maybe it is a bit of a go-to, like Hollywood is going down the rabbit hole. Fame is, and, and what's little is big, and what's big is little, and everything is sort of sort of in a, in a fun house mirror and distorted. So that might be what they were going for is, is this guy sort of represents a, a trickster figure or some sort of a magical uh, operator that, that, you know, enters the scene when, when fates shift. So something like that. I mean, that's, that's kind of how it plays out. It ends tragically, but there is a moment of, I don't know, joy or transcendence or sort of like, hey, I'm a crazy person in this crazy world too. And you and I are kind of the same in a weird way. So let's let's share the food and let's and let's just sort of embrace the craziness and chase the rabbit and have a good time before all innocence is cut down by two rednecks. Him being a trickster figure, I definitely can see that. And I thought that he was going to be a little mean to her, like at first when Vance brings out some food. The way he steps on the back of groceries was very threatening, I thought. And then that switches. Yeah, and then she ends up becoming his protector later on. And then she can't do anything when, spoilers, she's shot down. She and Chris are both killed at the same time. I doubt the first time I watched the film, oh, I, I, I really kind of hated that she died at the end. On rewatching, it now seems inevitable that she was going to die. So it doesn't bother me as it did not on rewatching. It didn't bother me nearly as much as it did on the first viewing. But I, I wonder how you reacted to her dying at the end. Oh, I was super bummed the first time I saw it. And then even because I waited about six months between the first time I saw it and the second time I saw it. And I'd forgotten that she dies at the end. Oh, and as I'm as I'm watching it, I'm just like. This can't end well, right? This is- <laughs> it is more obvious on repeat viewing that it's not going to end well. It didn't become obvious to me on first viewing until probably later than it should have. 
but maybe I was just hopeful because I liked Norma Jean so much. It is the frustration. Well, you know, you mentioned Elvis. Okay, I don't, and I don't want to take this into a whole other direction, but I just recently watched the new film entitled Elvis, which is kind of why I brought up the, the similarities it had to musical biopics. That that's sort of like, oh, okay, enjoy the first half of this movie because this is gonna be wrong. I mean, that's really why, like, I only listen to the first side of, like, the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack or the Evita soundtrack. I mean, it's all these, like, rise and fall. I mean, they are basically rock stars in both of those things. And, yeah, it's that rise and fall. And it's like, yeah, when it comes to Elvis, I'd rather, you know, 68 comeback special. Oh, that, that was, was it. You know? That was the yeah. peak. <laughs> I mean, I love the the, the Vegas days. I, I watch... Aloha from Hawaii via satellite as much as I can. But after a while, you're just like, yeah, look at that 60 comeback special. Look at how vibrant he was. And then this this is. Yeah, that one was magic. Eight years later, and he's, you know, so bloated and sweaty. And you'd have to really do some fancy footwork to get, you know, to, to have a triumphant end to an Elvis story if you're really following it chronologically, which is why Bohemian Rhapsody, A, played fast and loose with chronology and fact and went on to make 250 million dollars because that movie ends where you because you know he dies it's it's that happened decades ago so you already know that but it ends with a triumphant performance and we've seen him through the hard times and we know what's going to happen but we know he got his his last moment in at least in terms of how the movie is structured and you walk away not feeling devastated and that's a movie you can see more than once without it tearing your skin off jim the fact that you got through this movie four times i i feel like giving you a purple heart or something if you're going to do an elvis biopic let's end it with the 68 cutback special just add it right there you can put on a title card after that saying things got bad after this but go out on a hideout killed in vietnam there's no high note for norma jean and it's we have a female lead it's a movie written and directed by a woman about a almost archetypal female experience in in and out of show business that of being having your fate commandeered by a male figure for better or worse to the feeling of having what is good in you and what you have to offer being exploited and ground down into into nothing by someone who doesn't truly value it but simply wants it for momentary gratification. I mean, it's it's hard to argue with her thesis. It's the only end that I can think of. I can't think of her and Vance running off into the sunset. I would wish that that was the case. On first viewing, I was hoping maybe for an ambiguous ending rather than her death. But uh, again, on repeat viewings, I guess it had to go there. Why did you even stop at that junkyard? Why are you storing her there rather than just the two of you drive off someplace? But, you know, it, that just wasn't to be, I guess. Why does he go back? Does he go back just to do the performance? Is that when he goes back? They do perform without her. Does fans perform with the band that night? I think he does. I think you're right. I, I think he does. I think at one point he actually says, I'm going to go back and get the dome, which... Maybe I'm crazy, and Jim, you saw it four times, so maybe I'm imagining this, but I'm like, I'm like, what? Like, at first I thought it was crazy, but then I'm like, okay, well, anything that doesn't make sense for this movie, go back to fame. Well, does the plastic dome represent 
the the uh, unsullied dream they had at the beginning of the movie. I'll go get the dome, and this time we'll make the dome work. This time the dome will save us. After the first night of performing there, that doesn't go well. Bob, I was complaining, and I think Vance says we could move the dome. We could go somewhere else. And Bobo says, no, we can't do that. But I'm like, it's a collapsible dome. And you, you're not exactly in the greatest location, Bobo. Maybe you could take the dome, dome somewhere else. No, they're just outside Branson. This is a perfect location for, for, for country music and for any kind of music. This is where you want to be. Oh, that happened later. This was the beginning of... <laughs> Branson, Missouri. No, Pelly. This is Bronson, Missouri. Well, how do we get to Branson? Number 10 bus. Hey, Ma, how about some cookies? No dice. This ain't over. They talk a little bit why they ordered the dome, but I don't know how much this dome cost. Did they sink everything that they owned into buying this dome? It couldn't have been cheap. It looked so expensive. It looked, I mean, it's got, that, it's got that whole revolving door. I mean, it was amazing. The, the dome is is an unsung hero of the movie. Dylan gets my five-star review on Amazon. What's really funny, where where I grew up, there was a dome that was built and it was supposed to become a church. And so as I'm watching this movie, that's the only thing I can think of. And they ran out of money before they were able to complete it. So it ended up just being a giant concrete. It wasn't plastic or silk, a giant concrete dome with at least one big entrance and you can go over there park your car and just walk in and experience the dome that got pretty boring after about 10 minutes but it's like okay this might have been pretty interesting with the whole congregation and stuff in here but yeah never happened and then eventually it got knocked down and they built a, a lowe's over it and i'm like okay the dreams of man you could turn it into a nifty uh, planetarium Definitely. Yeah, we would even do things where like, you could stand against one wall and speak, and the acoustics were good enough that you could hear it on the other wall, like if you spoke oh, yeah, against like the in, wall. Yeah, there's a, in, the, in the Capitol in Washington, there's a place under the dome where you could do that. In your college paper, you can talk about how the dome represents Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. Ooh, extra credit. Because I was thinking the most famous dome in Los Angeles is the Cinerama Dome which I believe was also mid-60s, because I think the movie that opened it was It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yeah, 70 millimeter, and and I think that was mid-60s. And I thought, Yeah, that would have been 65 or 66 off the top of my head. You know, having been to the Dome, it, it's a little like, well, okay, uh, you, that's just the ceiling. I mean, you're still in a movie theater. It's, it's not dramatically different than any other movie theater. You're, you know, the seats are, are, are nicely raked stadium seating and there's a big screen and then there's just a, a dome and you can see the dome as you're driving down the street and it's like oh it's a dome but i don't know I, what was the dome mania going on we finally mastered dome technology the egyptians had their pyramids the americans have their domes though i know that you know saint peter saint paul's all those basilicas well had domes as well dome on the rock all that kind of stuff because it was kind of an Art Nouveau thing. I think there were other architects working with domes in the 60s. She shoots all of this stuff very smart as far as when we're talking about these big crowd scenes inside of the dome, they're shot really as much more, here's an image of the crowd, 
cut to close-ups of these people, so you never really get the people. You never really get the band or Norma Jean and a whole ton of people in the same shot at the same time. It's a lot more implied crowds kind of stuff, but I think that's very smart to do that because obviously they probably just had, you know, it, I don't even know if you see the dome in some of these shots when it comes to the crowds, but they probably just were like, okay, here's some crowd shots of these, you know, yokels from Table Rock. There is a, a, quite a few shots sh- inside the dome where um, the actors are shot in close-ups and there's literally, the, uh, they might be standing in front of a void. It's just totally black at back of them. And I found it very effective. And I don't know if it, if it was a budgetary choice or an artistic choice, but whatever it was, it worked. I think it works very well. Yeah. Some of those cl- uh, close-ups that they do where they, yeah, they look like they're in a void. is very smart. And even the the introduction of the band it's just like, here's close-ups of their faces against the white background. So them and their black it is very striking. I do wish that Andy and Francis had sort of had, had a more defined role to play, either sort of as, as her allies or supporters, even if they did not have the authority to really influence her fate at all. For some reason, because Bobo was defined in such a kind of repellent way, I think I, I sort of subconsciously just cast them in my own mind as her supporters, like people who were on her side, even though they weren't really doing anything to help her at any point. But, but I, I, I don't know because I did enjoy early again early on this sort of almost clownish nature of, of how they were behaving, and even like if you go back and just watch Sam Waterston. And he kind of lopes around and he does a thing and then he's like, oh, okay. And he gets out of there, you know, and like he's just, he is doing, he is doing something and it's appealing. I just, if, if I had any wish for this movie, it's just a, like a little more of them and a little more what their point of view was to the whole drama unfold. It was his first role and he's, he's great on screen. I mean, you, you. When he's on screen, you're you are looking at him because he's he has a screen chemistry. Yeah, it, it was kind of disappointing that he didn't have a bit more to do. Yeah, I totally agree. And like I said, I kept mixing him and Francis up at the same time, and I'm just like, okay, yeah, or him and Andy again. I, I don't really. He's Andy. The other the other guy's Francis. Uh, fun fun fact: the guy who played Francis, uh, Skip Hinnant, <laughs> voiced voiced Fritz the Cat. Yes. It both the original and the sequel. <laughs> and Richard, there's a Rankin Bass connection to uh, him as well. Oh, yeah, he that's also, right. He did the Easter Bunny one. Exactly. Yeah. I think it was, uh, what was it? The Easter Bunny's coming to town or whatever yep. it was. Yep, yeah. I think it's that one. Leave it, yeah. leave it to Rankin and Bass to cast the Easter Bunny with an actor named Skip. So we definitely watched that, if not last year, the year before when we were talking about all the Easter Bunny movies. Having only watched it the one time. There was another thing they didn't do with those three guys, Bobo and Andy and um, Francis, that that was sort of laying right there. They could have, but they didn't. They didn't make those guys outsiders, like big city people. They seemed like they were somewhat of that area. It wasn't like a corrupting element coming in from New York, you know, for want of a better word, you know, it. And and despoiling something that is pure and sort of grown from the earth in a in a more authentic 
place. They they didn't do that. I, that is the role that they play in a weird way. They sort of come in and usurp. But it's funny, they never explicitly say that, do they? No, they don't. And that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Other than Bobo, they seem very salt of the earth. And Bobo seems like he's cut from a different cloth. Because it's, it's very quick that we find out that he is conniving. You know, it's those little things at first, you know, it's that, oh, you know, this, we're not going to be famous and we need a promoter. We need this. We need that. We need an alcohol license. We need a bar, all this kind of stuff. And so you're like, why are you giving up so quickly? You know, so it's like that mixed with, you know, her flash of him with the other girl and her, you know, like you lied to me. And then it's like, after that, then it becomes much more prevalent as far as the way that he's manipulating just like oh we can exploit your talent and get you on stage it's like well are they really paying to come see you guys do your same four rock songs or come to see norma jean and get a real bummer of a psychic reading we don't necessarily see bobo's plan working in a great way it's not it's not like suddenly he shows up in a new car and it's, well, now the money's rolling in. It, we're familiar enough with the tropes that we think sort of fill that in that, oh, people are showing up. It's working. And, you know, he, 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 we can't give it up now. The, the, every newspaper in the country's out there. But we, but we don't see it. We don't, we don't like balance it off with, but we got all this cool stuff, Norma Jean. I mean, you don't want to give up the stuff. Which you would think that they would be doing, that it'd be like, or he would be doing, Bobo would be doing stuff where it's like, oh yeah, um, you know, oh, don't look in that briefcase that I have over there where I have all the payoffs that I've been getting or all the, the extra loot and stuff. And, oh yeah, I've got these secretly Brandon Norma Jean, I don't know, you know, gift cards or whatever it is. But well, they do, they do the one thing, which is again, kind of funny where they give her a present and it's this tiara and, and it looks like something you get at party city for new year's if go back to party city where you belong was that meant mockingly because it almost felt that way it's like really currently within the reality of what they're doing because vance is like i don't want you buying her gifts anymore like that's you're you're bribing her you're gambling her uh, you know, and mesmerizing her with your influence and your gifts to get her on your side. But it was funny, and she did like it, but if it was meant mockingly, she does absolutely does not take it that way. No, I mean, again, she is pure, naive. She is not cynical. She's not looking around corners, which, again, just it, it plays into it. It's like, look, you are taking this pure thing and you are draining it of life you monsters all right guys we're going to take a break and we'll be back with an interview with julene compton right after these brief messages hey everybody i'm lisa brennan and i'm justin trice are you a theater nerd or a movie buff are you interested in the world of fine art or the sleazy way celebrities break the law? Check out Crime of the Arts, a true crime comedy podcast that peeks behind the curtain to shine a light on the dark and untold truths of the creative arts. From film set mysteries to celebrity murders and art heists, we look past the bright lights to uncover what hides in the shadows. Join us each week when we both bring a surprise story to the episode with our pop culture-ridden sarcastic banter. Tune in every Wednesday to help get you over hump day. Crime of the Arts is available now everywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Peace out, everybody. Peace out, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> 
I wanted to ask you how you got your start. I understand you were originally an actress, but how did you even decide that you wanted to do that? I was an actress, and I went to New York when I was uh, just 70. But I looked about 12, playing the parts of 12-year-olds. They didn't have all of the problems that a child has to have when they're on a Broadway play or on tour. The mother has to be there, where, and then her teacher has to be there. And so I was perfect. They could make me play all of these children. So I played you know, all of these children. I was like a little baby, and I could play 11 years old, 12 years old, 13, 14, 15, and 16, and then I never had to have my mother with me. I only played children's parts, and it was like I was always playing the children, and so that's why I stopped acting. Well, how did you even decide that you wanted to be an actress? Well, I wanted to be an actress from the time I was five years old. I just wanted to be an actor. Even uh, when I was going to Sunday school, I was acting parts and things like that. I couldn't imagine being anything else but an actor. And then when I saw that I could never be anything but a, a child, I decided to direct. What is the, the time period here? Because you were born in, what, 33? When did you end up going to New York? Was that about 45 or so? Mm-hmm. And how long did you play the roles before you decided, I want to be a director? I realized I wanted to be a director when I thought I could only play children's parts. And and I really liked being a director. I loved being a director. I just decided to be a director. And I had played with so many directors, I knew exactly what to do and, and what they did that I liked and what they did that I didn't like. And also, I shared that with all of the other actors I played with. I learned a lot about what direction was from behind the uh, curtain. I just loved, loved directing. I had a theater in Mexico, in Mexico, in New York. I decided to direct all of the Ibsen plays, and so I did. And it was a theater, a big theater building with three theaters in, major theater with real big, big, big plays. I had a second floor that was turned into my theater where I did only Ibsen. And then upstairs, there was another theater where they did uh, experimental theaters and that sort of thing. So that was a wonderful life and it went on for 10 years. Then there was 9-11 and that was just the end of that. So I, w- I did that until 9-11. I've been... Uh, along a lot, of, a lot of paths. I had more than one path behind me. And I, I have more than one in front of me, too. How did your film work come about? There's a film group that was taking place at, I forget the name of it, but it was a big institution where they had film groups and they trained young directors and things like that. And I was in a group like that because they allowed girls and both, they were mostly boys. You know, because I had already done a movie, they invited me to join the group. And they were, they, they weren't babies. You know, I was the youngest one in the whole group, but they all made movies and I made a movie, a little movie. You just showed it. I know that you 
were pretty familiar with Europe and had traveled there and especially to France. And I was curious what your involvement might have been with the French New Wave. Oh, well, darling, I was living there during that whole period. And my favorite part of my life, if I could have my whole life again and I could choose, say, three years of any part of my life, and it would be the three years, three choice years that I had in France. And I made a film in, in, in Europe, and I did all of the editing and everything in France. And I was going to turn it into a French movie, and I don't know what happened. Somebody wanted me to do something, and I did it. And, but but when I was an independent, everything has always turned out well for me. Stranded was the first film that I made, and I acted in it, and I directed it. I didn't edit it, found somebody else edited it, and they edited it, and they were very proud of it, and so they they kind of blew it up in Paris because they were so proud of the film that he edited. And so I got to know them in Paris, and they were wonderful, and I just loved the French people anyway. And I loved being there, and I was going to make another film there, and then I was talked out of it, and I shouldn't have been talked out of it. <laughs> and then I went back to Hollywood. Can you tell me how did the Plastic Dome of Norma Jean come about? I went to one of those meetings when they, when they uh, asked me to come up and talk, because I was there with all, all the other people, and uh, I didn't do it, but I decided to make a play about it, I mean a movie about it. And so I just sat down and just started recording everything that I had seen. The little man out in the woods that showed me everything, and, and then he finally got shot. That was absolutely true. It was like a film verite because all the people in it weren't, weren't the actual people, but they were actors that I made them into actual people. I loved it. It was as free, it was open, and, and it was uh, constructive. And Can you tell me a little bit about how you got the cast for Norma Jean? Because it is just an amazing ensemble of talent, and especially people that were so on the verge of becoming big. I mean, it was great seeing Sam Waterston. Marco St. John is fabulous in it. There was just so many great actors in this. Yes, because I let them be themselves, and I chose them because of their karma. They had to work for minimum, but I chose them because they had the right vibes, they had the right looks, they had it, and, and I could improvise with them, and I could joke with them, and get them so relaxed that they would do, you know, and they would give really wonderful performance. The little girl that was in Norma Jane had never been acted, but her father was an actor, and so when I... He must have read the script, and so he sent his daughter in to see me, and so I thought she was wonderful, and she could do it, and so I got a performance out of her, and she was wonderful, and she was just vulnerable, and, and that quality that only an innocent could give you. It isn't a great actor can't give you that quality, because their technique shows, but she had no technique. And so she was vulnerable and just wonderful. And and I don't think she ever played another part in her life. I mean, 
was I don't think she ever got another job. She could hardly wait to go home. And it's interesting because since her mother and father were actors, maybe they discouraged her. Maybe they discouraged her because it was a tough life being an actress unless you just click, you know. It's a very difficult life to be a bit player. How was the actual shooting of the film? How was that experience for you? I just put, you know, the long shot, medium shot, and close up. And the, the cameraman and, and the photographer, we always got along really very well. You know, I, I really got along so well with the, with the um, very talented people because I inspired them and then gave them the freedom to experiment or do so so that they gave wonderful performances. You know, I just o- opened the door and gave gave them a dream to realize. How was it acting in your own film with Stranded? I was just an actor. I was my own director. <laughs> so, uh, But I was so innocent that I didn't realize how hard it was. Like all, all of the things I did about bouncing about on the boat and doing this and that. It just never occurred to me that I, I was just so innocent that I didn't threaten anyone. And they were so relaxed around my innocence that they suddenly felt very strong and, and brave and sure of themselves. Anyway, each, each and every film was a different experience and a wonderful experience, but I wasn't encouraged about doing a film, TV film or something, that they told me exactly how they wanted it directed and how they wanted to do this. So that, that to me is being like a bus driver or something. And, and I just, you know, to be creative and vulnerable and honest, I guess I just didn't, didn't fit into the scale or fit into the, to climb from the bottom up, you know, like starting to direct. I guess I just was spoiled by my own fantasies. Because I didn't want to direct television. I mean, and at that time, television was not the prestige that it is today. I mean, it must have felt like a big step down. Oh, it was. It was. It was was just, I had acted in a film. I knew enough about it because I had acted in a three or four programs. And so I knew what it was about. I knew what a director had to do in order to direct a television film. Because I know I had been in some television programs that I didn't want any part of that as an actress or as a director. I wrote a play and some producer had it and said, oh, please, please, this is fabulous, this is fabulous. I just want you to make it a television. And, and I said, no, no, you can get somebody else to do that. And so I, I think... What happened was I did get credit for the story and they got credit for the script or something. How did you and Michelle Legrand, how did you connect? Because the music in Norma Jean is wonderful. You know, he was so sought after and everybody loved him so much that at first he said, I just don't, I don't know. He said, I, I just don't want to do these small films. And they said, well, just look at it. Just look at it. He said, no, no, I don't have time to do that. I can do this. And then I went to see him, and then he started playing all of these things that he had written, and they were all, like, vast and wonderful. And then I said, well, now, listen, 
I listened to you play, now you've got to see my movie. And of course, once he saw it, he said, oh, well, he would do it for nothing. But will you just give me the rights? And I said, sure. Didn't even charge me. Everybody, when I made my films, except for the last film I made, we just fell in love with each other. Everybody just fell in love with each other. And so we weren't even, wasn't like we were even working or anything. And it wasn't as though when another scene was being done and they weren't in it. No, they were absolutely watching every scene that was made. They, they would, I would choose a scene with two people in it or three people and the whole cast was watching, which is kind of cute, doesn't it? Couldn't, I just couldn't work that way in Hollywood before. When I was doing everything just the way I wanted and nobody around me was showing me what to do. But, but as soon as I got any visibility whatsoever, then lawyers moved in and writers and yeah, whatever. If I just fell apart, like the last film I made, I fell apart because the lawyer that was going to, was just going to get this distribution for me and then I was going to use another person to to play the major part, and then this guy that just he made a sheer success on the TV film, and I didn't want to use him. I had somebody else cast for him, and they said, you can't do that. He's the hottest person in town. He would just, he'll be a big star. So I don't even know what really happened to him because I wasn't in Hollywood very long after that. It was, I, I was a free spirit, and I had all my own money by being a free spirit, because I made all my own money doing decoration. I would buy a townhouse. It would be about $60,000 in Manhattan at that time. Of course, you know, that was a long time ago. And then I, I would go in, and I would re remodel it and refurbish it and redecorate it and everything, and I'd sell it for 250 So what? Well, all of my friends were working, you know, a part-time job. When I made money, I made 400000 or 100000 <laughs> I'm a perfect example as innocence is bold. Innocence is bold. When Norma Jean is finished, where does it play at? In the end, the, the man got killed, or I forget. The, the, anyway, the last scene was Norma Jean was out there, and I, I forget everything, but it was, it was out there, and... And the police came because of this or that, and they were all boring and and shooting, and Norma Jean got killed. It, you know, it was like she was just, well, you know, they say too good to be true, and just, just so pure, to live in, too, too vulnerable to live in the world, and 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 she was just so wonderful. And and the, and the scene where he was making love to her. And, and tears were rolling down her cheek. He wasn't really, they really weren't undressed. You know, it was just, just shot in a way where they didn't have to be naked or anything like that. And they finally got into it. <laughs> and and he was an actor that I had just seen for about 10 minutes on it. And I thought he was wonderful. I thought all my actors were wonderful. All of those films that I made were made in about four years. Or three years, and then I then I went over to Europe, and I was working in Europe. The last film that I made was anyway it was made in Europe, so 
I just fell in love with Paris, and I stayed there with the whole Nouvelle Vague, and, and, you know, and I was just surrounded by wonderfully creative people, and, and that was just the end of that. I couldn't continue to make films that were, I don't know how to explain it, but there was a pattern of the, you know, the, they, they had a, you know, beginning and middle and end, and they were certain pattern, and, and I just wasn't inspired about doing that. I, I wanted to stay in France and just make French movies, but it, that's when the Nouvelle Vague kind of like went away, just drifted, and, and then I came home, and then I came back, and it was all television, television, television. I was just at the wrong place at the wrong time otherwise. If I had been earlier, say in France or someplace, and it was more freedom to like improvise, I think I could have gone and made a lot of films. But the world wasn't ready because it was very hard to get distribution if you didn't have, if you didn't fit that, you know, they had stars, they had to advertise. They had to have names in order to even get a, a distribution. It was just, you know, too complicated. I just spent the rest of my life not changing. I was curious, were you in France during May 68? Oh, yes, of course I was. Of course I was. I just was equating that with, with um, you know, with the date. But yes, yes, I knew. And I remember once the whole whole theater was filled with filmmakers and they were saying, and we're not going to do this and we're not going to do that and we're not going to do this, we're going to put up. And they were really deciding that they deciding that they were going to go into another direction. And uh, they did. And, and that was kind of like the end of the Nouvelle Vogue. You're going to ask me about the last film I made and it's a very sad story. Nicholas, that's my husband, said, don't talk about that. <laughs> when I was in Hollywood, he saw the film that I made in this, I forget the name of it, but I didn't even want to make it, but I had to make it because that was part of the, the schooling. And, uh, and so they said, well, give me a job writing television, and then maybe I could uh, direct some scenes that were cut into, you know, for meanwhile, you know, so that they weren't really in scenes, but it was just to make this scrap for a cut. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be a lucky girl that got to direction and television because I was always more um, a more free soul, and I just wanted to direct what I wanted to. And and the first song that I made. Uh, I had a script, but and I acted in it. We just went along as we 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 just just re- recorded reality. Actually, if I hadn't had a lot of curious success, I wouldn't have been bullied in a way that I was when I was in Hollywood, because they everything they liked about what I did was what they wanted me to challenge. You, you know, they wanted me to uh, start directing television movies. And they tell you know they tell you exactly what to do, and and, and that just isn't something that I wanted to do. I was just a, a free soul. I knew some lawyer, had some lawyer friends, and they kept telling me what I had to do to, for them to be able to get me distribution. 
And I know distribution is the magic key to the world. And so I listened to them, and, and I changed my whole film so that wasn't the film I set out to write. And so nothing ever happened to it. I always like a film to leave you with an open hand or an unanswered question. And the unanswered question is there's got to be something out there. And it was trade. And then, of course, by the time that everybody fooled around with my head, because it's the only film I ever made in Hollywood. And so there were a lot of people from Hollywood showing me what I had to do and what I had to do. They wanted to turn it into a Walt Disney movie. Of course, I was bullied by them. <laughs> and so rather than saying, there's got to be something out there, as she looked over the whole West, and everybody around me said, oh, no, these are wonderful, wonderful, fabulous, but you've got to do it our way. They liked the way I made a movie, and yet when they would give me a movie to make or a scene to do or anything like that, they would tell me exactly what to do. So it's like even the last film I made, I, I wanted to make it where she gazed upon the earth mm-hmm. and said there's got to be something out there. And she wasn't giving up after she... He was a cowboy that robbed banks. I was supposed to be delusioned and so delusioned that I didn't want to see him anymore and I didn't see him anymore. And, you know, there's got to be something out there. And then friends of mine who were so encouraging and this lawyer said, I've got to say it's a dream. And anyway, they just wanted me to make it a child's dream. When you're all about innocence, that's is that you just can't be innocent for very long because they all catch up with you. The world catches up with you. I could I could be innocent forever, but the world just catches up with you. So here I am living in a fabulous house, looking at the ocean as far as I can see, and uh, looking at the sunset and living with a terrific man, my husband, and uh, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. (laughs) I'm living with my husband. Thank you again for your time. This has been so great talking with you. Well, it's nice talking to you, and let me know when you come here. If you come to New York, give me a ring. You have my number. talking about the plastic dome of norma jean and i know uh jim it sounds like you had a chance to uh check out stranded what did you think of that one i thought it was again beautifully shot you know it was shot on location in the greek island so it's 
beautiful to look at. And Jolene Compton herself has an intriguing presence. What really hurts the film, in my opinion, is Gary Collins, who I think is terrible. <laughs> they have no chemistry. So it kind of feels like, are they are they involved? Are they platonic friends? I don't know. They are supposed to be involved, but you simply don't see that on the screen because they, the two actors don't connect at all. I'm making the assumption that it was shot without sound and looped because it has that kind of disembodied vocal quality about it. And I don't think that helps either. I don't think the writing is as strong uh, as Norma Jean. Nobody's really changing or growing from the experiences. And when the two main characters split up near the end, she says, I don't know what I want, but I do know what I don't want. That's not really a on screen. It's certainly worth watching if you like this film and you end up buying the Blu-ray because it's also the Blu-ray uh, set. But I think Norma Jean is a quantum leap in artistry over Stranded. Which is weird because there's only one year apart. I know, but everything about it is better. <laughs> I mean, I think the performances are better. It's better shot. And it just has a much more interesting visual style than than Stranded. Stranded is, again, great to look at because of where it was shot. But I don't think it's innovative in the way it was shot in the way that I think Norma Jean is. I mean, it felt more new wave to me. It felt almost little Jules and Jim. Oh, absolutely. Talking about like looking for trouble. I kept thinking of Knife in the Water as well when it came to the setup of the two men and the woman on a boat. Yeah. yeah. And I I was glad like her other friend is obviously gay. And I'm just like, well, that's kind of progressive that this character's gay. And it's really not an issue other than like, hey, don't tell Gary Owens because he's pretty square. But otherwise, I was like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, just these three folks run around over in Greece. And I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, it's beautiful areas, beautifully shot. looks really good. There's not a whole lot that happens in the movie, but I mean, I think I'd be fine watching it on a Saturday afternoon, but yeah, to your point, I agree that Norma Jean surpasses everything and it just, it's cut from a different cloth for me. Uh, How are you on uh, Buckeye and Blue? What were your thoughts on that? I mean, just having read what went on with that one. And then also, so like in the interview that we just heard with, uh, Ms. Compton, she is still hurting from that experience. You can just really tell that she, it's like every time I would ask her a question, we would start to talk about what I asked about. And then she would inevitably go into Buckeye and blue. So circle back. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, man, she really, you know, it's all these years ago, but it's like, Hey, look at, I had so much promise and this is what Hollywood did to me. Just with that bitterness, I really couldn't enjoy Buckeye and Blue, even though I thought it had promise at the beginning. I think it's another film hurt by a performance in that I think Robin Lively is pretty bad. (laughs) She's very one note. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I also like Norma Jean the best out of these films is just because the performances are pretty solid in that one. I agree all all around in in, in the second film. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Lively. A little bit of her goes a long way. And her accent is not good. And it's just a very one-note performance. She kind of half yells most of her lines, and it just doesn't work. That one now is tougher to find than the other films, which is ironic. 
which I think Julian would be absolutely fine. I'm sure with. she'd fine with that. Yeah, there is no way on God's green earth I ever would have seen this movie if it wasn't for you, Mike White. So thank you, Professor, for the assignment. I must have read about this film in, I guess, 2021 when UCLA did its online screening and then completely forgotten about it because when you brought up doing this episode, I went to my Letterboxd account to put that on my watch list and it was already there and I had no memory of putting it. I knew that I wanted to do this as soon as I heard about it. And then when I was able to get in touch with Julian Compton, I was just like, okay, great. But it took us almost a year to actually set up that interview. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. It was a lot of like, oh, well, she's out of the country. Oh, she's not feeling that well. Oh, you know, and I'm just like, okay. And with her being at the time when I interviewed her 89 years old, I was just like, we've got to get this interview. If anyone is listening, wants to see a lovely portrait of her, they should Google her name and Diego Rivera because- Rivera did a portrait of her. I don't know what year it was. I think it would have been in the 1950s. And it is a lovely painting. Yeah, and thank you for doing that translation of the article about it. That was great. I was very surprised when that came up. And that even came up. It was weird. With some of the articles about her, there was one article that was really much more about her as a decorator. It was kind of like a lifestyle piece where it was just like, you know, Julian Compton has this beautiful portrait by Diego Rivera and a bust by, and I can't remember who did the bust. And these are the only things that she takes when she moves to a new place. And then she redecorates around those and just goes through this whole thing about her as a decorator. And then at one point it's like, oh yeah, she makes films too. And it's like through those discussions is where you find like these little things where it's like, well, I want to make a movie about this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, oh, okay. So it's like, you see those unmade films, which are, you know, it's always tragic for me when I read about like unmade stuff, especially when it's like seeing something as what, you know, as well done as plastic dome. And then it's like, you know, and then nothing until like, what was it? The next uh, thing that is, is credited her is a screenplay for, was it the, the story of lucky Luciano's crew? Yeah. Virginia, Virginia Hill. A mobster. I don't remember which mobster, but um, Diane Cannon was in it. And I actually remember that getting very good reviews when it aired back in the day. I've not seen it. Oh, sorry. It's Bugsy Siegel. And yeah, you're right. And it was Joel Schumacher, one of his first directing uh, gigs that he did. It's an amazing cast. And uh, that luckily is out on uh, YouTube. You can see that whole thing in full it was five years before dixie night at the uh, or sorry it was five years before amateur night at the dixie bar and grill this was joel schumacher's first directing gig there's another tv film called the women of west point that she gets a writing credit for although i think only a story credit i must have been rewritten by other hands after she worked on it yeah i think she mentions that in one of the the pieces where uh she says that she was rewritten and there's another one where I can't remember what the story is, but she says that she wrote it and that it eventually got made, but I don't even think her name's on it. Yeah, I dimly remember that. I I think you're correct. I don't know what project that was. What a thankless job. All right, gentlemen, on that happy note, let's go ahead and take another break and play preview for next week's show. The only perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. 
I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thee body and soul for everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee. We'll be back next week with a discussion about Ganja and Hess. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts Ganja and Hess, otherwise known as Richard and Jim. So, Jim, what has been keeping you busy lately? Oh, just uh, life in general, but I, I have nothing to plug. Oh, okay. Just out there making the world better for punctuation and spelling? Yeah, that kind of thing. I love it. I'm a copy editor for those <laughs> who wonder what he's talking about. <laughs> So, and Richard, when you're not obsessing about rear ranking and bass specials, what are you up to these days? Uh, just writing and producing Titans for HBO Max. We've uh, dropped the first half of season four, and seasons one, two, and three are available on HBO Max. And second half of season four will debut in 2023. Uh, don't know exactly when, hopefully not too long, uh, maybe late winter. That and then uh, writing show descriptions for uh, the hottest new podcast, 80s TV Ladies, uh, that Susan Lambert, uh, my wife, is uh, hosting and producing. Uh, and that's really fun. They're, they're doing some amazing episodes and getting some cool interviews and stuff. You know the show. And that's available on weirdingwaymedia.com, where you can find this show as well. So thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, yeah, check out those other Shows over at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Whoa, whoa, whoa.